So God, I ask that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts worthy in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. We give you this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas, and I wish you the happiest of New Year of a new year. A practice of mine in recent years um, is to read the Christmas story on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And I know that as a pastor saying this, you're like, well, of course you do. You pray every day three times a day. Why wouldn't you do that? It's not true. Christmas actually, for me, is tough as a pastor because there's so many other things to, make, to take care of. You know, there's, there's all the budget stuff that we're looking at. There's all the different services. There's the parties. There's this. There's that. And stepping into it and with, you know, all of our Christmas Eve services. And at the end of it, it's like, I just worked five services. Like, I'm exhausted. And it's easy to lose the meaning of it all in the midst of it. And so a discipline that I started a few years ago was I'm going to actually force myself to read this story and I not act as if I just know it and let it speak to me. And in my reading of it, when I'm reading the book of Matthew, I usually stop at verse 12 in chapter 2. That's where the Magi go home and they go home by a different route and Christmas is over. Well, the thing is, is that the Christmas story doesn't stop there. It started to actually gnaw at me and kind of annoy me last year because as I was reflecting on it, I realized I skip over this because it's so jarring and dissonant. It doesn't match up with the joyful coming of my Lord and Savior. And actually, this tough chunk of text is often referred to by biblical commentators as the slaughter of the innocents. And that's a reason enough alone to just skip over it and go, Jesus is now in the temple. Let's go to Matthew 3. Let's see what happens. Mary and Joseph are going to forget him and let's go on to that story. The problem is, is that this text, this scripture is there. It tells us the story of a genocidal king that slaughters an entire generation of Jewish boys because the birth of Jesus Christ is such a great threat to him. A story of the Holy Family ducking for cover and becoming refugees into Egypt and remaining in hiding until it was safe for them to return, but not safe enough to go back to where they were from, to go hide in the backwater town of Nazareth. For me growing up, the birth of Jesus Christ was always remembered and retold with soft colors, with beautiful music playing in the background. The slaughter of the innocents was never a part of any Christmas rhythm that I was aware of growing up. And I actually can't recall hearing that scripture read in church. People, and I'm included in this, expect and are generally offered a story limited to joyful angels, exciting shepherds, and the birth of Jesus The scriptures we do read are mixed with promises of peace, with visions of a beautiful child and a holy mother and a courageous father and some humble animals. There appears to be almost this conspiracy of silence which refuses to notice this massacre in a fleeing refugee family. I think then the question that we have to ask ourselves as we notice this omission to our practice of Christmas is why did such an event happen? And Fine, it happened, but then why did Matthew choose to throw it in one of the Gospels and force us to read it? Well, the answer to our first question as to why this event happened requires us to get to know Herod a little better. Herod was an exceedingly complex person. In the early days, he was described as good-looking and powerfully built. He personally led his army into ten into the field of battle in ten different wars and was victorious. One of the high points of his nobility was he was actually a close personal friend of Antony and Cleopatra, and he supported them against their war against Octavian for control of the Roman Empire. 
And after winning decisively against Antony, Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus and travels to Rhodes to plan his next move. Well, Herod, being shrewd, quickly plans his next move and rushes to meet the new Caesar and is granted an audience. The crazy thing about this is that for most of his life, Herod had been a close, personal friend of Antony, and he supported him against Octavian. And you have to wonder, how is he going to manage with a new Caesar? He smartly appears without a crown and boldly confesses to all the support he'd given Caesar's enemy. He also admitted that he'd even stayed loyalty to Antony even after Octavian had defeated him. Herod climaxed his presentation saying, what I ask is that you not consider whose friend, but what a good friend I was. Caesar decides that Herod was a man he could trust, and so he puts the crown back on his head, and Herod returns home to Palestine with a more secure throne than he'd ever had. From there, Herod starts to disintegrate and decline. In all, he married ten women, had many children, sons for him were often seen as political rivals, Two of his favorites, we're talking his favorites, is the ones, you know, he actually said he loved more than the rest and denied to everyone else. He had those two strangled. His favorite wife he had killed because he suspected she wasn't loyal to him anymore and in his grief would wander around the palace at night calling her name, sending his servants to search for her and would have them beaten when they couldn't find her. Herod was a mixture of this brilliant, shrewd, strategic thinker with also this deep, sense of brokenness and brutality. Toward the end of his life, he actually grew seriously ill with a number of diseases. And in his very last days, he had the crown prince arrested. And in pain, he tried to take his own life. And a guard prevented him from doing it. But in the midst of that, confusion breaks out in the palace. And the crown prince hears that he's dead and is yelling to be let out of prison so he can assume power. And Herod ends up surviving a suicide attempt, has the crown prince executed, and then dies five days later but not before he gave an order for all of the notables in Judea to be gathered up and corralled in the Colosseum at Jericho. And Herod had given the order that upon his death, all of these notables were to be executed so that there would be mourning in the land. Herod knew that no one was going to weep for him. When we learn this, I should tell you, fortunately, that order was not carried out. They gathered their senses and but then they promoted his son, who was equally as awful, so they didn't really learn that much. It's a conversation for another day. But with such a record, it's, we're not really caught unawares, and it's understandable that old man Herod could have ordered this slaughter of a generation of, he, of boys in Bethlehem. It was a brutal world that Jesus was born into, and Herod was a man of his times. And that's my long way to offer a very simple explanation to why this massacre happened. We live in a broken world. We want better answers. We want better excuses for why these things happen. We quite simply don't. We live in a broken world, a world that is far too impacted by brokenness and the power of evil and darkness, a world that can't offer a better response than our horror and revulsion as we hear this story. We live in a world that needed a savior. Well, now that we have a sense of why this and how this event could happen, we have to ask ourselves, why does Matthew want us to read this text? What is he trying to tell us? Well, the off-observed response to this is that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses. Moses was born in his own kind of slaughter of the innocents as Pharaoh was ordering all of the Hebrew boys to be slaughtered. And so here you have Matthew relating a parallel story about Jesus, setting him up for who he would be and for people to take notice like, hey, this guy matters. 
But the thing is, is I think that there is another reason for this inclusion. During the 20th century, there were not only two world wars, but six major genocides. The mass killing of the Armenians by the Turks in 1915. Of the Jews and other groups such as the Gypsies by Hitler. Of the Cambodians by the Khmer Rouge. Of the Kurds of northern Iraq by Saddam Hussein. Of the Tutsi by the Hutus in Rwanda. Of the Croats, Muslims, and Albanians in Kosovo by the Serbs. People saw their family and friends who were killed by gunfire and explosive and all the other horrors of modern war. It saddens me to also note that in all the acts of genocide I listed, except for the Kosovo Albanians, the international community and its leaders failed to act in time to prevent serious loss of life. We would do well to remember that the slaughter of the innocents continues. And that's not just fancy rhetoric for me to try and prove a point. Genocide Watch, which is a non-governmental organization that tries to bring awareness to these uh, atrocities across the world, has placed genocide emergency designations, which means that a genocide is underway as we speak in six countries. So as we sit here in worship, there are six other genocides happening in the world. In Sudan, in Iraq, in Somalia, the Central African Republic, in Myanmar, in Nigeria. The slaughter of the innocents continues. And what we sadly have to acknowledge, I gotta back up real quick. I didn't know that until I researched it this week. Do you know what saddens me? I knew Kim Kardashian's New Year's Eve plans. (laughs) That is crazy. I'm reading about this and I'm realizing I can tell you what the new fad is coming up and what recommendations for how I can live a holistic new year. I can't tell you and couldn't have told you if pressed to ask two weeks ago if there was genocide happening in the world. I don't think I'm alone in this, and that should say a lot to us. Because the slaughter of the innocents continues. And what we have to acknowledge is that the actions of Herod are not from days gone by. They're not the days that we've progressed beyond. And in fact, in many ways, all our notions of progress, all they really have done is help us become far more effective and increase our scope of the genocides that do happen. We've really only improved what Herod was started, and the slaughter of the innocents continues. Herod is not dead. Herod lives on in us, the people of God and in the enemies of the people of God. All of our exaggerated ambitions, desire for, for selfishness, for greed, grudge against God, and finally human cruelty and intolerance and, in, and insensitivity have to be contended with until the day that Jesus comes again. There are two kings at war in the world and in us, Herod and Jesus Christ. We know who will win, but until that day that Jesus comes again, that battle rages on. Herod is here in this scripture partly as a warning to all of us, no matter who we are, even though we who are gathered here today will say we're people of the gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ, that we participate and that we need to become aware of our participation in the brokenness and brutality of this world because the slaughter of the innocents continues. How do we retain faith under such conditions? What, what would our response be? What do we do? I think one answer, and there are many. <laughs> I'm going to offer a few, but there are many.
But one answer is that we should remember both the Christmas story and the cross. A mindless, bloody, brutal act occurred at the birth of Jesus Christ. And after reading that story, we're not caught unawares by the human potential for terror that shows its ugly face again on the cross. At the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and at its conclusion, Matthew presents these pictures of depravity, of agony, of atrocity. And he presents pictures of a world that Jesus came to redeem. And that only heightens our awareness of the willingness of God to expose himself and become totally vulnerable to be born into a world that was that brutal to save us. What I think Matthew is saying clearly and loudly is that if the gospel can flourish in a world that produces the slaughter of the innocents and the cross, it can flourish anywhere. And from this awareness, I believe that the people of God can take heart. And yet, the slaughter of the innocents continues. I say that because, God willing, we're going to do a lot more than just take heart and cling to the cross. We should start there. That's a good thing. But God willing, we're going to find a way to ask for forgiveness for the ways in which we participate in the brokenness of this world. And God willing, we're going to find a way to respond and participate in the ways that God is redeeming and restoring and reviving all of creation. Because we are a people who have been gathered to be sent. The Christian faith, hear me on this, the Christian faith is not a spectator sport. You did not sign up for a life that was meant to be lived blithely by attending worship services that gave you warm fuzzies to feel good about the lives you go step in back into. If the life of Christ lived in between the slaughter of the innocents and his death on a cross is any indication of the life we're called to leave, this is more than a spectator sport. The first disciples understood this. And they took the faith that they were given through Jesus and they let that take them places that they would have never have gone on their own. And many times it led them to their death. We have no example, and I can't say this more plainly, we have no example in all of the New Testament or in the early church history of the people of God standing idly by as spectators in the world. They preached the gospel with the firm belief that it had the power to change human hearts and that change would announce the coming of Christ. They had the belief that their faith was not some personal experience. They had the belief that it had the power to remake everyone and in turn announce the remaking and restoring and reviving of all things. They have set before us an example that we must follow because the slaughter of the innocents has to stop. And by the grace of God and the gospel we cling to, we know that it will. But what we have to remember, and this is key, what we have to remember is God is not hiding what his plan or his pattern is for how he's going to do this, how he's going to bring heaven to earth and remake and restore and revive everything. The Bible is a grand narrative of a story of God pursuing his people many times through them. Our faith is not a spectator sport. Because the kingdom is coming in you and I and everyone here has a part. The Bible ends with heaven coming to earth. And in that coming, evil, sin, death, they die. There will be no more tears. Herod will die. And the slaughter of the innocents will cease. Finally.
Now, if you're sitting there, you might be wondering, but I live in Bellevue, and what am I going to do about this? My first response is that this applies to you because genocides are still happening the world over. And in order for them to stop happening, we would do well to acknowledge them, to see what we could do to stop them, and to push our leaders to do the same. Now, hear me on this. I'm not, I'm not messing with your politics, okay? Because I'm going to tell you right now, this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. This is more than anything that you want for a national agenda or what that looks like, our foreign policy. This is a human issue. People are dying. That should mean something to us. I should not have room in my head for what Kim Kardashian is doing. My second response is that even if we ourselves aren't in the midst of a genocide, it doesn't mean we're somehow removed from the evil and the brokenness and the brutality of this world. Sin, evil, brokenness, they have personal and, yes, communal impact. Our brokenness, our personal brokenness, impacts the brokenness of this whole world. So let's be honest. Something like the slaughter of innocents is not something that we just wake up one day and we're like, well, that happened. In order for something that horrific to happen means that the pervasive brokenness of this world reached a high watermark that so many other things led up to and allowed for it to happen. Let's take Germany in World War II, for example. Hitler did not do that on his own. It took the participation of the German people to allow for the Holocaust. It took their indifference and their fear towards people who were different from them. It took their acceptance of intolerance and discrimination. It took their willingness to treat others as less than them, beneath them, and not worth protection or grace. And Hitler got their participation in his slaughter by capitalizing on their collective fears and turning those fears into a narrative that gave license for everything that came after it. What I think is interesting is I say that is that I also think that over the year, this last year, let's just talk the last calendar year, we just ended 2015, we have seen headline after headline after headline of terror, of brutality, of such overwhelming suffering that we start to become numb. I stand in front of you a bit ashamed to admit this. I'm hanging out with my buddy Trevor a few months ago, and he comes over to my house, and he says, hey, did you hear that there was a shooting today? And without thinking, my response was, another one? I just was going on with what I was doing. That terrifies me. Because we start to medicate our fear and our uncertainty, and we put up walls and barriers, and we start arguing on social media, because that seems to be the only platform we can talk to each other about policy and security and retaliation. And we turn to our screens as an escape into this viral consumption which is almost endless consumption. I don't know if the internet ends, and its, its strategy is that it doesn't, so we will keep going back and getting products and news and latest trends and learning things about people we will never meet. And all of a sudden, everything begins to feel really hopeless. And it starts to feel like nowhere and nothing is safe. What scares me is it starts to allow us to put labels on people Call them our enemies. Really anything, just make them into an other, something we don't like. Pick your poison. And that designation will give us license to dehumanize them and ignore them. And that 
is how we begin to allow another slaughter of the innocents to happen. Some of you may know I was in the army for 11 years and I was served as a chaplain and while I was in I read this book that was talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and the connection of PTSD to the training that soldiers receive in order to prepare them for combat. And as a chaplain I needed to know everything I could about PTSD because it was literally coming at me every day. And so in this book the author makes the argument that they needed uh, to, or, in order to train a soldier to kill on command, they needed to condition them to remove the cognitive process between sighting a target and squeezing the trigger. And so what we did, and I, I did this, is we went to the firing range day after day after day, and I had pop-up targets that would go up for three to five seconds, and it was just sight, select, squeeze, sight, select, squeeze, sight, select, squeeze, just going and going and going. But the other component, and this is the more dangerous part, is that they needed to train us to remove the humanity from the target. And that is where language was key. They weren't training me to shoot people. They were training me to shoot a target. And the targets were given names that we used to distance the humanity of a person from their designation as a target. And about the only names that I'm actually comfortable sharing with you here are the names that soldiers used during World War II for the Germans when we called them Krauts or Jerry or different things. You can imagine others. I'm still bothered by the names that I did this, I'll admit this to you, that I used and that my, my fellow soldiers used to describe Muslims. But that's the thing, is we gave them a name. A name that was derogatory. A name that was defaming. A name that was dehumanizing. And so, when they wanted us to shoot, we weren't going to have to think about a person. We just were thinking about an It. We do that too. We find ways to label others, to distance them from ourselves. Sure, most of you aren't doing it to engage in warfare, but the game is still the same, and we end up in the same place where we can do harm. And I got to tell you too, it's even by passively doing nothing. We need to remember that we are the people of God. We are the people of the incarnation, we are the people of the resurrection, and that has to make us different. We are the people of a God who conquered sin. It has to make us different. The way we take part in ensuring that fear, hate, and evil don't ever win is by clinging to the gospel and letting that change our hearts, by not allowing the gospel to be subjugated. I mean, now I'm going to mess with your stuff, with your political views, with your gender, with your race, with where you were born, or anything else. Instead, we can choose to be the people that are going to be known first, not by any of those things, but by our love and but by the Savior who sends us. Because what we know to be true is that the only thing that has ever been powerful enough to conquer fear, hate, and evil is love. And that's the love that we saw born on Christmas Day and that we saw crucified on Good Friday and raised on Easter. Jesus Christ is the only hope we have for the slaughter of the innocents to stop. Now, in a moment, um, our worship band's going to come up and they're going to play a song and there will be a video that goes alongside it. Kyle suggested this to me and I chose to end up going with it because I didn't want to do some sermon where I said, well, here's your three points. Here's what we do to stop genocide. Let's go do it. Right? Because we're Bellevue. Um, <laughs> I thought instead we should probably take a moment to reflect 
on who God is calling us to be in the midst of this world. Where are the places that we currently are? What are the things that we could be doing to begin to stop and never allow the seed of the slaughter of the innocents to ever sprout again? The song's called Brother, and it's written by a a group called The Brilliance, and there's a line in the song that goes, Forgiveness is the garment of our courage, the power to make the peace we long to know. Open Open up our eyes to see the wounds that bind all of humankind. May our shuttered hearts greet the dawn of life with charity and love. The slaughter of the innocents continues, and we are called to act. My hope and my prayer for you is that that first step will be our recognition of your role in the midst of healing and restoring and reviving the whole of creation to live out the gospel wherever you can. Holy God, thank you for being our God that meets us in the midst of dark places, that speaks to us, that never leaves us, that never forsakes us, and is present to us now, and is present with those that are dying right now. May we take to heart the love you have for the whole of creation, and may that love change our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
see my brother.